Oh, would you please join me as we stand together to read God's Word and turn in your Bibles. I hope you have one to Genesis chapter 48. As I said earlier, this is, Lord willing, the second to last study in what has been a long series of sermons through the Bible's first book. As we have done in recent weeks, we come once again to a text that's two chapters long as we want to look at all of chapter 48 and all of chapter 49 together today, which is really just one scene as we see the great patriarch Jacob on his deathbed, giving his final words of blessing to his children. But to get us going, what I want to do is simply read all of chapter 48. So verses 1 through 22, Genesis chapter 48, and then pray for our time and we will begin. So let us hear now as once again our promise-making and covenant-keeping God speaks to us through his word. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them, they shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I might bless them. And now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so he could not see. So Joseph brought him near, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand, toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my long life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people, and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his offspring shall become a multitude of nations, 
So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would bless us as we study your word together. We do come to it asking that you would send your spirit among us, that we would behold wondrous things from this truth. Father, you know that we are all dying people. You know that I am a dying preacher. Unsure are we both to ever see another Lord's Day, to hear another sermon that tells of Jesus Christ, and so help us to hear as we must, with urgency, with honesty, for me to preach as you say I must, with boldness and clarity. Help us to see your Son. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. When he was 19 years old, the brilliant theologian-to-be, Jonathan Edwards, began to write down a series of personal resolutions. Dozens of them came over a number of months, and when I first came across his list of resolutions, there's one that stood out to me as uniquely powerful for a variety of different reasons, and it was his ninth resolution, where he said, resolved to think as much as possible upon my dying in all of the ordinary circumstances that come with death. And if you know anything about Edwards' life and ministry, you know that he seemed to be resolute in that resolution. Because the time, by the time he gets to the age of 54, he's on his deathbed, and the only family member that is with him is his daughter Lucy. And he looks across the way to Lucy, and he's prepared with these words that seemed ready at the tip of his tongue, These final words that he wants to pass along to his family. And he simply says to Lucy, Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. And he says, As to my wife. Then he relays a message to Lucy that she's to bring to his wife, Sarah, of his love and affection for her. And then he says, As to my children, you are now like to be left fatherless which I hope will be an inducement to you. So kids, that's an encouragement to you to seek a father who will never fail you. Some of you, and I trust many of you, and we all hope all of us will be able to give final words from our deathbed to our loved ones. I wonder what words you would want to say to your children, to your friends, To those to whom you are near. Maybe they would be words of comfort. Maybe they would be words of regret. Perhaps even they might contain words of warning. Words of instruction. Or it could be like Jacob in our passage. Words of blessing. Because that is the key word that we find all throughout chapter 48 and 49. I hope you noticed as we just read the 22 verses of chapter 48. Look again at verse 3 of chapter 48. Joseph, 
hears from his father Jacob about this great vision, this dream that he had so many years prior where God Almighty appeared to me and blessed me. And so it's almost as though as that remembrance of God's blessing upon him, he begins this torrential flow of blessings upon his family. You'll see in verse 9, he says, bring these children to me that I might bless them. Then verse 15 says he blessed Joseph. Then verse 20 says he blessed them. That's his two grandsons. And that word blessing or bless, it shows up another nine times in chapter 49. And look at the summary statement, chapter 49, verse 28 at the end. This is what Jacob said to them as he blessed them and blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. So these two chapters are full of deathbed blessings. The theme then that we want to look at is God's blessing upon His covenant people. That's simply what is before us today in these two chapters, God's blessing on His covenant people. But whenever we think about blessing in a biblical sense, uh, we need to grant, surely we need to recognize, that our modern way of using the word bless is not sufficient to capture the biblical richness attached to the concept. Students, here's what I mean by that. I would imagine for many of you, it's entirely likely that you have been blessed in recent weeks after you sneezed. Bless your heart. And we, of course, use the word bless your heart after this convulsion of air from the mouth or nose as ordinarily as the Bible would use it, yet we seem to mean something quite different, don't we? So the question that you want to have at the forefront of your mind as you walk into deathbed blessings of Jacob, what exactly is a blessing? according to Scripture. And I'm not thinking actually today of a simple way of defining it, because you could do that. I'm thinking more about putting in biblical imagery, biblical significance to what it means to be blessed as part of God's covenant people. So what does it mean that God blesses His covenant people? Well, we're going to see that along the way in two simple parts. First, we'll see Jacob's blessing on two adopted sons. That's chapter 48. And then His blessing comes in chapter 49, really in the form of 12 final destinies. So chapter 48, two adopted sons. Chapter 49, 12 final destinies. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, your father is ill. Your father is dying. He's on his deathbed. Now remember, we've got to think about after what. When it says after this at the beginning of verse 1. So if you were with us last week, we looked at chapter 46, 47. Kids, you remember what happened in chapter 46 and 47. After years and years and years of thinking that his beloved son Joseph was dead, Jacob now reunites with his now alive son, who happens to be the ruler in all of Egypt. So he takes the family from the promised land down to the pagan land of Egypt because he's got God's promise of his presence wherever he goes. And God intends to use Egypt as something of a womb in which he's going to grow the nation of Israel into this great nation that will bless all other nations. And by the end of the chapter, in chapter 47, you'll notice that Joseph and Jacob exchange this conversation. And Jacob says to Joseph, don't leave me in Egypt. Uh, Take me out of Egypt when the exodus comes and bury my bones in the promised land. And you'll see there's this image of peace that came, the final verse in verse 31 of chapter 37, that Israel bowed his head himself on 
His staff is really what that should say, not the head of his bed. So it's this picture of peace that segues nicely. We don't know how much time has passed, but eventually he's now not just resting his head on his staff. He's actually resting in his bed, genuinely so, looking to his dying day. And he says, Joseph, my beloved son, come see me. Uh, You need to capture something of the urgency of the passage. If your translation reads different from mine, maybe it has the word behold in both verse 1 and verse 2. My ESV only has it in verse 1. But in the original, it's in both verses. Behold, your father is dying. Then verse 2, behold, your son has come. So there's this urgency, this kind of closing of the final matters. As Joseph comes with what probably were like his 20-year-old sons. You know, they're in their late teens and early 20s, surely by this point. Manasseh and Ephraim. They arrive. Jacob renews his strength. He sits up in his bed and he recalls this great dream that he had back in chapter 28 where God appeared to him, sat next to him, stood next to him, even the stone staircase that stretched down from heaven to earth. And you remember what God said there. He delivered these great promises and blessings to Jacob. And Jacob here at his dying day, what is he remembering? First and foremost, God's promises, God's blessings, There's so many decades before at the stone staircase dream. And I hope many of you, and certainly one day all of you, would have that kind of an encounter with God's word, with his promise, that it's almost as though it's just etched into your memory, tattooed upon your heart, that very few weeks go by, certainly not many months go by without you remembering what God spoke to you by his word and through his spirit promises that sustain you through difficulty, promises that strengthen you through hardship, promises that accompany you to your dying bed, like they do here with Jacob. And some of you may have been to an official adoption ceremony before. You go into a legal courtroom. I've been to a number of these, and it tends to be, you know, close friends and family members are there uh, to listen to the judge. Make the official pronouncement that this child or these children now belong in this family, as children in this family. And if you've never seen that before, you get a sense of it in a certain way here with Jacob, because what you get in verse 5 and following is an Old Testament, ancient Eastern adoption ceremony. Look at verse 5. He says to Joseph, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. These will no longer be grandsons. These two, Manasseh and Ephraim, they're going to be my sons. And you should ask the question when you see something like that. Maybe you've never noticed it before in your study of Scripture. Why now? Why this adoption at his deathbed? Well, the answer is pretty simple. If you want to hold your finger in Genesis chapter 48, you can flip all the way over to 1 Chronicles chapter 5. You don't have to flip there. It's one simple verse that tells us the purpose of this adoption. Because it's got a purpose that's quite significant for the old nation of Israel as they walk forward as God's covenant people. This is what 1 Chronicles 5.1 says about this adoption in Genesis 48. Remember the firstborn of Israel, of Jacob, his name is Reuben. And 1 Chronicles 5 verse 1 says, Reuben was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. So a birthright belongs, a double portion of it, 
to the firstborn, but Reuben has forfeited it because of his previous sin was sleeping with his father's concubine. And so it's as though that double portion now belongs to Joseph through it now going to his two sons. And really the significance here isn't just that Jacob is adopting these two boys into his family. It's the order of the blessing to these two children. Because in subsequent Old Testament narrative, what you find is oftentimes when the kingdom is divided, you'll see the northern kingdom, the 11 tribes in the northern kingdom. They're often referred to by one name, Ephraim. And you should ask the question, why is it that Joseph's younger son becomes the same with almost all of Israel? Well, it's because of what comes next. So see in verse 10 what we're told about Jacob. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Now, when was the last time, students think about this, you heard of an old patriarch, functionally blind, getting ready to bless his children. Isaac, Jacob's father, a blessing that likewise found the younger would rule over the older, that the older would serve the younger. And you remember, of course, that blessing was taken how? By deception. Here it's now going to be according to divine decree. Because he's old in his age. Jacob can't see very well. Joseph walks his sons forward. He puts Ephraim, you know, he's the youngest, on his left side and gives him, you know, to Jacob's left hand. And then Manasseh is on the other side to get the right hand, because he's the oldest, the best part of the blessing. And then somewhere in the course of how that sequence goes, Jacob does this. And then he begins to bless the children. And look at what he says in verse 15 and 16. The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, I'll come back to the blessing really in verse 16 in a second. But I want you to notice something very significant in verse 15 and 16 about Jacob's experience under Yahweh's lordship. You were with us last week, you might remember, Jacob was summoned to Pharaoh's court. When he shows up, Pharaoh asked him, well, how old are you? And do you remember what Jacob said? My days are few and evil. Such was his experience for the decades of his life by that point. Seventeen years go by, and do you see how verse 15 and 16 have undone few and evil? Look again. God has been my shepherd all my long life to this day. And the angel who has redeemed me from what? All evil. Uh, so we said last week, it can be a common experience among God's people that years and years, even decades and decades, can go by and you experience only sorrow and suffering, hardship and hurt at God's providence. But there is the promise of His kindness and goodness that He'll undo all of it in time. We don't know when exactly it's going to happen, but you see it here with Jacob. At the very end of his life, he's ready to say, no longer, my days are few and evil. My days have been long and many. 
blessed because of the Father's kindness for me. Why? Because he can say, God who has been my shepherd. As David even says in Psalm 23, famously, the Lord is my shepherd. Do you want to know how it is that you can walk through sorrow and suffering and still find goodness? That you can still find deliverance from trouble and evil? It's because you can call him my shepherd and my redeemer. And we now know my shepherd and my redeemer has a name. Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd and the only redeemer of sinners like you and me. So if you glance down at verse 16, the blessing is simple enough, isn't it? It's about a name and nations. Jacob simply says to the two boys, the name of Israel belongs on them. They're going to carry it on. You know, they were born to an Israelite father, an Egyptian mother, but they are part of Israel now. Not just that, both are going to grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So here you have in Genesis 48, two boys that by the time of Israel's wilderness wanderings, their tribes will number north of 72,000 people. God working out his promises, slowly but surely, Jacob blessing these two sons as he's adopting them into their family, his family. And what a picture it is, isn't it, of the good news, the gospel of adoption. You know what, you might be in here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You wouldn't say that you're trusting in Jesus Christ. One of the great blessings that comes to us in the Lord Jesus Christ is that the Father adopts us into his family. And I sure hope you notice how from this story there's nothing that Ephraim or Manasseh did to deserve this adoption. They just were adopted. In fact, if you read the story right, it seems like they were only adopted because they belonged to Jacob's beloved son, Joseph. And don't you know that the Father doesn't adopt anyone into his family because of anything they've ever done, anything they've ever will do, anything they are doing, only because they belong to his beloved son, Jesus Christ, whom he has brought, these children, these brothers and sisters of the king with his very blood. So if you look through verse 17 and following, Joseph, while all the blessing is going on, he's been distressing because he sees the hands switched and he recognizes according to the custom of the time that Jacob in his old age and his blindness maybe, he's messed it all up. So he's dead, dad, this is the way it's supposed to be. And Jacob says, no, son, this is the way it's supposed to be. Look at verse 19. He says, I know, my son, I know. He, that's Manasseh, the oldest, shall become a people and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. Not for the last time in the book of Genesis, we find, again, the younger ruling over the older. That our sovereign God of sovereign mercy and sovereign grace, he loves to upset the expectations of common cultures and customs, doesn't he? He does it his way, because his way is the right way. It's the best way. Once again, you look at verse 21, Joseph receives this promise that God is with him. Verse 22, Jacob's final dying words really there in some ways of specifics to Joseph is, I'm giving you this mountain slope, is what verse 22 says. I think a better translation is actually, I'm giving you Shechem, because that's kind of what it says in Hebrew. And it seems like what's happening here is somewhere along the way, Jacob has taken the city of Shechem and is saying, hey, Joseph, you get that city all in you and your descendants. That's the blessing in part that's also going to belong to your family. Two adopted sons, now leading to 12 final destinies. 
You know, kids, I wonder if your parent has ever come to you or maybe a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, someone in the church, a teacher has said, you know, when you grow up, I think you should be this. Well, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in the 19th century in England, had something like that happen to him when he was six years old. A missionary that was well known in the area came into his grandfather's church and was preaching through all these meetings throughout the week. And he got to know young Charles pretty well, and he was quite taken in with Charles's personality, his ability, and by the end of the week, you could find Charles on this missionary's knee as the entire family is surrounding him in the room. And he says, I tell you this, this boy will preach the gospel. He will preach it to multitudes. I dare say even he will preach it in Roland Hills Church, which may not mean anything to you. But Roland Hill's church was by far the largest in England at the time. So what must Spurgeon's family have felt when they heard these words of a future destiny? What must they have felt and wondered amongst themselves when just in a few years' time, it all became true? What must the brothers of Joseph, the sons of Jacob, felt as their father calls them together one last time and says to each one, this is what is going to happen to you. Look at verse 1 of chapter 49. Gather yourselves together, Jacob says, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. You could simply even say what, I may, what may happen to you in the last days. So it's thinking further off into the future, what's going to become of all of these tribes. And if you're somewhat familiar with chapter 49, you know that out of all 12 sons, there are really two that Jacob is most concerned about in his prophetic declarations of a final destiny. There's Joseph and there's Judah. So you can run through the other ten quite simply. You'll notice, first of all, he begins with the firstborn, Reuben. Reuben, he says, you've forfeited the place of preeminence because you slept with my concubine. He moves next to Simeon and Levi. He says, you're going to be scattered about because of your violence that you enacted on the people of Shechem. And if you skip further down to verse 13, he says, Zebulun, you're going to be the seaside power. And then you keep going on down the list, Issachar, you're going to be powerful and lazy, but your laziness is going to get you into trouble. You're going to be enslaved by the Canaanites. Dan, you'll judge your brothers. You'll be small, self-reliant, yet a mighty warrior people. You can see verse 19, Gad will raid and be raided. Verse 20, Asher will live in fertile land and have great food. 21, Naphtali will rest secure and have beautiful children. And then at the end, verse 27, Benjamin will be a notorious warrior tribe in Israel. Expert marksman with the bow and arrow. But right before that, you of course get the blessings that belong to Joseph. Unless we think that these prophetic final destinies are something of judgments upon the children. Notice again how the text is underscoring the reality of blessing. Look at verse 25 and 26, saying to Joseph, By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on Joseph's head. So it's simply a blessing of fruitfulness. You'll see in verse 22, according to Joseph's tribe, in the future they're going to be bitterly attacked, severely harassed. But God is going to be with them and bless them 
the blessings of heaven above will fall upon Joseph. And did you know the Apostle Paul used language almost identical to verse 25 in the letter to the Ephesians? To all those who are in Jesus Christ by faith, he said in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Such blessings of fruitfulness belong to all those who are in Jesus Christ. But the amazing thing of chapter 49 is not that Jacob says Joseph will be immensely fruitful. It's that Joseph doesn't get the supreme, superior, preeminent blessing. We've said it in weeks past, haven't we? That belongs to the fourth in line, Judah. Now, if you haven't been with us, here's what you need to know about Judah. In chapter 37, the first time we get to find anything out about Judah in any detail, his brothers are talking about killing Joseph. Judah's fine with that plan. But he says, you know, maybe maybe we might as well make some money off of him. Let's just sell him into slavery. And so off goes Joseph at Judah's strategic plan into Egypt. Then chapter 38, years and years and years, it's probably even decades pass by. And what we see about Judah in that portrait of chapter 38, he's nothing but an unrepentant idolater, continual promise breaker, and unashamed adulterer. Reuben disqualified himself. Simeon and Levi disqualified themselves. And so you assume, of course, that the fourth in line, Judah, has disqualified himself. But God says, no, this is the one through whom the blessing, the blessed one, is going to come. So do you want to know what blessing looks like according to Scripture? Do you want to know what it means that God blesses His covenant family? Just pay attention to verses 8 through 12. Four things as we begin to close. God's blessing is the blessing of victory. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. And again, just underscore that word, you. If you're reading Genesis right, you get to this point and you say, before you? But yes, ultimate victory is going to come through Judah's tribe. His hand is going to be on the neck of his enemies. His brothers are going to bow down to him. The great ultimate offspring of Judah is going to come. His name is going to be Jesus Christ. And every knee in heaven, every knee on earth, and every knee under the earth will bow before this one from Judah. It's a blessing of victory. Number two, it's a blessing of royalty. Look at verse 9 and 10. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and he crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Speaking of power, isn't it? So you want to know why Revelation 5 5 calls Jesus Christ the Lion of Judah. That's right here in verse 9 of Genesis 49. This unstoppable lion. That's who Judah is. Not just that. It's an unstoppable king too. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. All royalty, everlasting rule, belongs to Judah's tribe. So David, the king after God's own heart, comes from which tribe? The tribe of Judah. It's David that gets the covenant promise, doesn't he? 
that someone from his family would always be on the throne, fulfilling this promise that was made so far back in the book of Genesis, a promise that's come to fulfillment through Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings, out of whose hand no one can grab the scepter, from whose feet no one can grab this staff, such as his power and rule. To belong to Jesus Christ is to receive the blessing of victory, as to receive the blessing of royalty, as your children of the king, your brothers and sisters even of the king. But thirdly, it's a blessing of plenty. Look at verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. You know, frankly, you read some verses like this, and you kind of can recognize and sympathize why many Christians struggle with these poetic, prophetic passages. Because, kids, you're supposed to read verse 11 and think to yourself, that doesn't make any sense. Tying a donkey to a grapevine? Who does that? It's always to a tree or a fence post, right? And surely no one washes their clothes in the blood of grapes. No one uses wine as laundry detergent. Well, what's the point? In Judah's tribe, in his kingdom, the prosperity is so great that you're like, I'll hitch my donkey to a grapevine. The choicest wine flows like oceans that we might as well wash our clothes in it. Because we have so much. It's a blessing of victory. A blessing of royalty. A blessing of plenty. Finally, fourthly, a blessing of beauty. Look at verse 12. His eyes are darker than wine. And his teeth whiter than milk. One of the most influential theologians, at least in our circles, in the mid-20th century was a man named John Murray. He was a professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. At the age of 19, he was fighting in World War I, and he lost an eye. And so when new students would come into Westminster Seminary, they would hear these stories of Professor Murray and his glass eye. And so they would ask the older, experienced students, they would say, well, how do you know which one's which? And they would look at them and say, well, here's, here's the trick, really. You know, you go into his class and he's lecturing. Just look carefully at both of his eyes. And one of them has a, has a glint of humor in it. And that, of course, is his glass eye. Because Murray was renowned for being this, you know, hard, reverent, yet cold man. But if you look at verse 12, I think the translation should be read, read his eyes are more sparkling than wine. I wonder if you have a picture of a lion of Judah who's got a glint in his eye. It's actually in the original, it speaks of constant joy. That's why it shouldn't be darker. It should be more sparkling than wine. A savior who looks upon his people with the constant twinkle of joy. So satisfied is he with his own that he has ransomed through his very blood. Well, you get to the end of chapter 49, don't you? And you see Jacob once again expressing to his family these commands. When I die, take my bones and take them back to the promised land. He's dying in peace. He's dying in hope. He's dying in fullness of faith and the blessing. So look at verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into bed and breathed his last and gathered and was gathered to his people. Dying in the hope of a blessing promised. 
I sure hope you know today that you can die in the hope of a blessing fulfilled. God's blessing fulfilled to his covenant people. The question maybe isn't so much can you. The question is much more significantly and spiritually will you die in the blessing fulfilled. Because understand how this blessing, victory, royalty, plenty, beauty is all yours in Jesus Christ. When he comes in the new heavens and the new earth. Galatians chapter 3 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. So, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The blessing of Jacob might come to you. The blessing of Judah might belong to us. And so it was on that tree that Jesus was cursed unto defeat that you might receive the blessing of victory. He was cursed unto treason that you might receive the blessing of royalty. He was cursed unto the loss of everything that he would even cry out the cry of the forsaken so that you would receive the blessing of plenty. He was cursed unto being rejected and despised by men so that you might one day be able to see the king in his beauty. Jesus Christ, all glory be to him alone. For he is our king. He is the lion of Judah. He is the blessed one that is given to God's covenant people. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would indeed bless us in Jesus Christ with a fullness of faith. That by your Spirit you would turn us from our sins. That you would remove the blinders from our eyes that prevent us from seeing the Son in his beauty. Lord, we ask that you would give us peace in the midst of our hurt. That you would give those who are suffering calm amidst their trouble. That they would look to you as their shepherd, as their redeemer, the Jesus Christ, their savior, who can guide them with his rod and his staff, the scepter that can't be taken from him, our lion of Judah, who continues to bless us even this day. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.